The love of God is something that took place before the first word of creation was spoken. Before anything happened, it was all planned out. He knew the end from the beginning. It was in the mind and heart of God exactly what he was going to do. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity and every opportunity to share your word with my hearers. I ask, dear Lord, that you would make your word to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Grant that we might behold Jesus, who is the spirit of prophecy, to to prophesy to us this day, not in things future, but just bringing forth the meaning of your word that it might bless our hearts that we might be granted to see Jesus in his glory, in his humiliation, as he humbled himself and became a man, who left heaven's glory to accomplish the Father's will. Lord, we pray that we would see the gospel and we would be affected by it, that it would change our lives, it would transform who we are. We ask these things for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. This uh, episode is 33 uh, in the podcast that they might know. And the title of this message is Predestined to Conformity. And it's taken from Romans 8 and verses 28 through 39. So let let me read 28 to 39 to begin with, which is Quote, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring charges against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died but rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ. Will tribulation or trouble or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, 
nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans 8, verses 28 to 39. I want to put this in as much context as I can, so as we as we begin this, this lesson, I want to start by reading from Romans 8, 9 to 11. Now in Romans 8 to 9 to 11, the reason I'm bringing this particular paragraph to light is because there is this magnifying of the spiritual life in Romans chapter 8, over 6 and 7. The truths are the same. The principles remain the same. He comes from different angles, whether it's the law, or whether it's the spiritual life. Uh, but even though it comes from different angles, it's, it's the same message. There's no contradictions. It's just a fuller, greater meaning. Now, in, in verses 9 through 11, the emphasis there uh, is really on spiritual life versus fleshly life. So he says, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So he makes this distinction that the, the, man, the spiritual man is the man who is indwelt by the Spirit of God. The man can live, a Christian, a believer can live off the flesh, or he can live by faith in the Son of God and in spiritual life. He goes on in verse 10 and says, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. So there's this death in the body. But there's this spiritual life because Christ was raised from the dead and it's that life that is imparted to the believer. True, eternal, eternal spiritual life. So he continues in verse 11, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So there is this spiritual life of him who raised Christ from the dead, and as it lives in us, that resurrected life in Christ from the dead gives life to our mortal bodies. It's a spiritual life. So spiritual people live an overcoming life through the Spirit of the risen Christ. So it's Christ in us, and it's the spiritual life that gives us an overcoming life. Overcoming sin, overcoming the weaknesses of the flesh, incoming, overcoming the worldly perspective of life. It's about a spiritual life. That's why a person who comes to Christ needs to come to Christ with his eyes on heaven, on spiritual matters of sin and holiness, of eternal, with an eternal perspective. Now, as we look at this spiritual life and what it means to be spiritual people living overcoming life, we're just mentioning it. I want us to go on then to verses 28 to 30 where it's predestined people live a purposeful life. Just as spiritual people live an overcoming life, predestined people live a purposeful life. 
Because he says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, there's a purpose. All things don't work together just like in this nebulous vacuum or this place where you can just put into it whatever you want. That's not, that's not a purposeful life according to God. That can be a purposeful life according to us. That's not the way the Christian, the believer, is to approach life. He's to approach life purposefully, God's purpose. So when he says all things work together for good, all things, no matter what happens in your life, and it's, it can be devastating, it can be hurtful, painful, suffering, he's saying all things. He's not saying all things are good. He's saying all things work together for good. God has a purpose in it to those who love God, to those who love God, not God-haters, not people who are not seeking God, not, not people who won't acknowledge even exist, not people who deny his existence or will, will not give him any honor or glory in their life, not people who hate God, people who love God. All things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his, God's purpose. And the purpose is laid out in verses 29-30, where he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, we're going to look at these words, to be conformed, in the New American Standard, to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers, and these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he just also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. A lot of terms. Understand some of my listeners might be kind of swaying back and forth, like my head is swimming, like what's all these terms? Let's just take it a little bit slow. And let's look at these terms for what they mean biblically. Now, the first thing we're going to look at, and I'm not going to do all these in order, but those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. These are tough words. Now, verse 29, and actually in the Greek, it says predestined conformity. So we might read that for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined conformity. And I'm pointing this out for a reason, not just because that's what it says in Greek, but in context of these verses, it's very important. And the conformity is to the image of his son. So let's lay down the purpose of life. The purpose of life is conformity to the Son. The Son has attitudes, motives, will. He has character. The Son is the image of the Father. It's three persons in one God. Don't ask me to explain that. But in that that dynamic of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's personhood in one God. So you see the Son, you see the Father, and what we're being conformed to is the image of God. We're being conformed to the image of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the purpose behind all this. So the things that are working to good are doing this. In the believer, they're creating Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. Be like Christ. So that predestined conformity is, uh, is about, it's not about process. It's not about process. We are being sanctified, but sanctified is missing missing in these verses. 
For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that we would be the firstborn among many brothers, being Jesus Christ the firstborn, meaning he has first place. All the honor and the glory goes to him. Everything goes through him. Nothing is accomplished, accomplished apart from him. It's all about the Son. Big point. So those whom he foreknew, he also predestined conformity to the image of his Son. And these whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. There's no sanctification in this. It's not pointed out. If we turn to our Bibles to 1 Peter, in his first letter, he lays out right in his first verse, second verse, he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now, the sanctified is to be simply set apart for a holy purpose. Set apart to God. Made holy by being set apart to God. God is holy he is set apart. There's no, there's no other God. There's only one God. There's none that are uncreated. There's no eternal people or angels or any creature. He is without, beyond time. He has always been. All these concepts that we can't really wrap our mind around, but all of that belongs to God because he's separate. He's holy. We are separated to him as believers, and, that, and by that we are Sanctified, but there's also a process of being sanctified, which is a process of being made holy, going from sinner to saint, going from wretched or wicked to godly and righteous. That process is not in these verses, and I'll, I'll show you why. So there's foreknew, there's predestined, there's justified, there's called, there's justified and glorified. There is no sanctification. There is destiny, and no matter how much sanctification takes place in this life, it will be, we will be brought to completion following death. So if there's a little bit of sanctification, if people are at the 30% mark where the sower sows seeds and he brings forth fruit, and some of the fruit is 30 and some is 60 and some is 100, and there's, so there's gaps at death or when we're snatched away to be with him, as in 2 Thessalonians, in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, there is this completion of the sanctification, which a man is the soul now of righteous man made perfect. We're all made perfect. We're all brought to that place that we need to be in complete identification, sanctification in Jesus Christ. That's how you enter heaven. In heaven, it's a finished work. God is not confined to time, and therefore he goes from justification to glorification. There's, it's in the past tense. Glorified. Whom he justified, past tense. He glorified, past tense. It's done. God's not controlled by time. I mean, he can be a million years from now. And there we are with him. It's a glorified... Don't try to wrap your mind around it. Just accept it for what it says, because it's the word of God, and it's true. Now, I want to look and backtrack just a little bit because he begins with those whom he foreknew. And there's a purpose for all this, and we're going to get there. Foreknown people. We just looked at the second part, which is predestined people, and we're still there, kind of, live a purposeful life. 
Well, you know what? Four known people live a humble, identified life. Foreknown. To be foreknown by God. He foreknew us. People, these kind of people live a humble and identified life. So then how does foreknowledge work? That's a big question. It's, uh, it's huge. And we need to look at it in a, in a way that will help us to understand how God works. And it's important to understand because in, in knowing how God works... There is a sanctification takes place at a, a much higher level. So what, what then is foreknowledge? Foreknowledge is a love of God that was placed on us beforehand. It's not knowing, like some will say, God looked down the corridors of time and he knew what we were going to do and therefore he predestined us. I mean, that's, I don't want to be, I don't want to be dismissive. I don't want to sound cold or too hard. I just want to say terms must mean what they are meant to mean, particularly in the Bible. When God uses a term, you know, we make mistakes. We we use terms incorrectly. God's not capable of that. God is not capable of a mistake. God is not capable of error. So when a word is used, which he created, by the way, and he places into time and into cultures, and particularly in the word of God, how he uses it, when he uses a word which he uses foreknowledge or predestined, we we understand destiny. What's your destiny? To be predestined is to have a destiny beforehand. It's pre, it's back, it's before. It's predestined by God. Not because he saw ahead of time what we were going to do, but what he determined was going to happen. See, God is God, and he's sovereign, and people don't like those terminologies, and they, they knock a man by the name of Calvin. But if you take the time to read Calvin's Institutes, you you understand, you start to understand just how much he loved God. Begins with prayer as this priest. This, this going beforehand to lay the ground, the foundation for all the, the doc, great doctrines to come. And I just mention these things because he wouldn't give up the sovereignty of God. And for God to be God, he has to be God. It's not that he gives up his sovereignty and there's nowhere ever spoken in the Bible. If anything, he says, I am God and my glory I will not give to another. What's his glory? His glory is that he's eternal. He's in control of all things. He's sovereign. He's the ultimate in love. But he's also the, the ultimate in everything. He doesn't give any of that away. Nowhere in scripture does he say give any of that away. That being the case, foreknowledge is knowledge beforehand. So people look at that and they say, well, okay, so it's knowledge beforehand, but there's more to it than that. The love of God is something that took place before the first word of creation was spoken. Before anything happened. It was all planned out. He knew the end from the beginning. It was in the mind and heart of God exactly what he was going to do. But foreknowledge is so much more than that. Foreknowledge is not to know ahead of time without control. It is to know ahead of time because God is in control of all things. He doesn't just know what's going to happen. He predetermined what's going to happen. But it's even more than that. Foreknowledge 
is to love. Knowledge is, I'm going to give you this in Genesis 4.1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, I believe, really believe that she was saved at this point. She had been covered with the blood, and she is a kind of a picture of her and Adam both having come into a redemptive relationship with God, and all the words would be spoken through a Christian. The first parents putting forth the God, what they knew and understood, which was good news in the shedding of the blood, and we were forgiven, and God restored our relationship to what, however, until the level that they understood. That is there, and for that reason, it comes out and even says, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. It wasn't a sinful, wicked, wretched, wretched person who had fallen away from God, and this is a person who had been restored and knew that everything came through God. So she has relations with Adam, uh, which is what means what it mean, what it said when it says what it means by what it says, which is now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. She brought forth a child not because Adam knew the color of her hair and the color of her eyes and her stature, and he knew she, what she looked like or other things about her personality, what it might be. It's he he had intimacy with. That's another way that this could be spoken, even though the word is new, and it's there for a reason. And Adam, or first man, Adam knew, had intimate relations with Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore, bore Cain. So when the Bible talks about the fact that God foreknew us, it means he had planned beforehand to have intimate relations with us through redemption, through the death and resurrection of his son, by which we could be reunited with him, be brought into a holy relationship with him, and he could have that intimacy. When the Holy Spirit comes to live within, that's intimacy. It's, he's in our mind. He, he created the conscience, and so he can speak through the conscience to an unsaved person. But the depth of knowledge that comes by coming within the heart and the mind of a redeemed person is at a much, much higher level. Intimacy with Jesus Christ results for us in bringing forth the life of Christ within us. That's why Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. I'm died, but nevertheless I live. Yet not I but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. That's this. Who foreknew me and gave himself for me in lovingly being sacrificed. So foreknowledge is not just knowing ahead of time. It's loving ahead of time. It's determining what would be accomplished. Men who are in the flesh cannot please God, Romans 8, 7. They do not submit to the law of God, neither are they, they're not willing to submit to the law of God, neither are they able to. Men in a lost condition 
cannot choose or would not choose to receive Jesus Christ as Lord. To, to make Jesus Christ Lord, to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, is to say, I give you my life, I'm living for you now. That is a finished work in the mind and heart of God before creation for those for whom he would die. And that intimate relationship that then transpires after a person is, their heart is regenerated and it's, they're born again. And God does that work first so that they, they can choose Jesus Christ because otherwise they, we never would. What sinner, what wretched sinner who hates God according to Romans chapter 3, what, what wretched sinner who doesn't even acknowledge his existence, that doesn't seek God, there's none that seek God according to Romans 3. Well, we're all just God-haters. Who in the world, in that condition, would say, yes, Jesus Christ is Lord of my life. Take my life and do with it what you want. That can't and would not ever happen according to Scripture. That's not the way it works. And it's explained right here in the term foreknowledge. Predestined is to, be pre, to determine ahead of time. And so he, he carries these, these terms forward about calling. That's God speaking out through the gospel. Speaking out in some cases as in Abraham where there's uh, the presence of God and he heard an audible voice. And he responds to that, and there's a calling, as, as in, in the case of Samuel, where he speaks to him, and he comes out, and, and he thinks, you know, did, did, did you speak to me, to the priest at that time? And, well, no, I'll just go back to bed. And then after three times, you know, the priest of, of that time says to Samuel, you know, he's perceiving that God is speaking to him. He heard an audible voice. To us, we hear a voice through the scriptures. The completed scriptures, we hear God speaking in what he's written. And there's a calling, and the gospel is proclaimed, and people respond to that call. So that whom he foreknew, he also predetermined, he predestined, because he's sovereign, and whom he predestined, he calls. That's in time. God calls people. And whom he calls, he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified and that's where that glorification takes place now how does this work out in our lives so that this we live lives which are overcoming which are purposeful where we go from fleshly bodily driven lustful worldly desires to a maturing person in Christ, understanding God's purpose for our life, his working through the Holy Spirit, and making these things work out. Because I'm sure if there's Christians out there listening to me, they're thinking to themselves, you know, I have an awful lot of trouble with sin and temptation and the world, the flesh, and the devil. I mean, they're creeping on me every day, and it's a misery. All right, let's, let's, let's move away from the misery a little bit into a very exciting life a successful, a victorious life. So this works out in the believer this way. I'm going to read through these verses, 31 39, and understand the perspective being set forth here. 
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now understand where faith is in its object. Faith is only as good as its object. If your object is yourself and what you have to do in the Christian life, you're lost. You may be saved, but in your faith, it's unproductive because we can't do anything. You know, the, the sanctified life is, a life is a humble life. Four known people live a humble, identified life. People who God foreknew are loved. And people who are loved have a perspective when they recognize just how great that love is. It's not that, oh, Jesus died for me and he loved me. There's a lot more to it than that. If God is for us, who can be against us, the apostle says. He who did not spare his own son. I mean, he offered up Jesus Christ to die on the cross. This is no little thing. This isn't just about nails in his hands and his feet and a crown and thorns in his head. As horrible that is physically. This is about spiritually bearing the the brunt of the anger of God towards sinful people. And he took our place. None of us understand that. None of us have been in the place where we can uh, appreciate what it means to suffer at God's hand when he's angry with us. None of us have been in hell who are still alive and remain here. Jesus bore that in our place. He, didn't, he wasn't spared. God just laid out his wrath on his beloved son. This is talking about how great a love he has for us. It was like Christ was in hell forever, which only an eternal being could experience. Who will bring charges against God's elect, the apostle asked. I mean, who's going to do this? And then he gives this, these wonderful phrases to us, God is the one who justifies. That means we're made just in God's sight. I mean, he sees Christ with having carried all the sin away. He sees us as Christ. His righteousness. His holiness. He who, made new, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might have the righteousness of Christ placed on us. Who is the one who condemns? Yes. I mean, who's going to condemn? He's going to condemn one upon who, who already carried their sins, was, their sins were carried on Jesus Christ, his beloved son? Really? That's how he's putting this. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. I mean, Christ is the judge. Christ is the eternal God. He's the word, the eternal word, as in John chapter 1 and in the first few verses. Christ Jesus is he who died but rather was raised. I mean, he goes right on from the fact that he died to he, he was raised. He wants a, our concentration in the right place, that it's newness of life that's been placed within our souls. Who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or trouble or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword just as it is written. No, none of those things. There's the perspective. Nothing can take us out of 
Jesus' hands. And his hands are in the Father's hands. No one can take us out of his hands. This is a done deal. That's why everything's in the past tense. That's why there's no sanctification here. Sanctification as a process. We're set apart to God, but he doesn't want to confuse the issue, so he leaves sanctification out. Because this isn't about the process when we talk about foreknowing, when we, when we talk about predestination, when we talk about having been justified, having been glorified. He doesn't want to confuse all that. This is all done by God. Now that's a very important point. And so before I conclude this fact of these verses, so nothing can separate us. And for your sake we are killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. What, what, what's that? Because he had, Paul had an eternal perspective. And he lived in, a, in an eternal way, which means he's, he was prepared to, death every day, to die every day. He was prepared for death. He, he knew that was coming. It comes to us all. But, but for him, he was going to live for Christ. But in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, principalities, not things present or things to come, nor powers, these are all angelic beings and levels of them in their place, nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now in the recognition of this perspective, there's victory. Because through this perspective, we understand the love of God that was given to us through not sparing his own son. That's all for one purpose. What's the purpose? That's right, conformity to Jesus Christ. When you get on this page and you get out of the works of the flesh and you get out of the fact that, look, I was saved. God loved me. And you know what? He made me something special. And he's given me powers, and he's given me gifts, and he's given me and me and me and me. That's not where you want the level, the devil to take you. The Christian life is not about pride. It's about humility. And so as we go on here, I'm going to take you to another place in the scripture to kind of get a, a, a picture of this. Look, there is a recognition of God's love in Christ Jesus in verses 31 to 39. We just read them. We haven't really you know, poured into them and pulled them apart. What we do is we are just re reading today, giving you an overview of these verses to take you to this place. That in the Christian life, there is the humility that comes from our death to the wretchedness, having died with him on the cross and risen in newness of life. In that recognition, there's a humility. Why? This was all done. It was all planned ahead of time. All his purpose, all the circumstances in life, all the people who come into our lives, they're all for one purpose, and that's to conform us to the image of Christ. And there's a, there's, there should be a humility in that because we can't do it. We can't do it. We weren't there when he died on the cross. We're here now, but we can't do it anymore. I can do all things through Christ Paul said in Philippians, who strengthens me. So what's if Christ is not there? I can't do anything. I mean, I'm the branch. He's the vine. Apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. I'm the vine. You're the branch. 
If I'm severed from the, the vine, it dies. Apart from the vine, we can do nothing. We bring forth no good fruit. Oh, we might do things that look good. We might feel good about them. But that's all about pride. That's all about our feelings. That's all about, not our faith, but that's all about how we feel about ourselves. You know what that means in the kingdom of God? Nothing. Nothing as far as accomplishing something good. God cares for our feelings. He doesn't want to hurt our feelings. He loves every part of us. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is accomplishing God-produced, divinely-produced fruit in our lives. There is the humility that comes from our death. In this life, there comes the recognition of his righteous life and our depravity in the flesh. The key chapter to the church's realization of new life in Christ, in my opinion, and I'm going to tell you that's in my opinion, I'm not saying this is God saying this. I'm saying this is me saying this. Realization of new life in Christ by the Spirit, the death of the old life in the flesh, is Matthew 18. That's right, Matthew chapter 18. It's, it's here where, starting in verse chapter 16, going through 17 and 18, and we're having the confession Christ. Peter's confession now with the Christ, the Son of the living God. There's the transfiguration. There's the demoniac cast out. There's tribute money. It's all about faith. You know, pull a faith out of the ocean. When you get him, out of the sea. When you get him, he's going to have a coin in his mouth. Go pay it for me and you. Faith. It's about faith. 18. It's about faith and humility. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus in verse 1 and said, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So Jesus is talking about going to his death. He's talking about dying. He's talking about bringing forth the fruit of redemption through his own death. He's talking about the church. He's talking about you're going to be, you know, upon this stone, upon this rock, I will build my church. What's that? Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the Messiah. Upon that rock, I'm going to build my church. And what's the first? What, what are they asking? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Okay, let's set down the, the preliminaries. Let's show you the foundation of the church. That's what Jesus is saying here. Okay. He calls a child to himself, sets him before them, and says, Truly, okay, so this is the truth. I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's the prerequisite for entering the kingdom of heaven according to Jesus. Unless you are converted, you're changed into something new and become like children. Now, how does that make you feel when Jesus says that? Okay, look, a child can't do anything. You know, they're, they're incapable. They can't go out, and, and a five-year-old is not going to go out and work for his living. I understand horrible things happen around the world, and they do horrible. But a child is a child. He's not a mature adult. He hasn't gone to grad school. He hasn't developed, you know, the ability to work carpentry with his hands. He doesn't have an art 
He's helpless. He needs his mother as a baby to even eat. You know, it's just a child. Unless you become like children, uh, that's right, you can't do anything. You can't enter the kingdom. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he's then greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So he goes beyond infant to a child who asks for things. Daddy, mommy, those precede everything he needs. Daddy, mommy, otherwise you're not going to get it. You can't make it happen. You can't reach the cabinets. You can't cook food. It's not happening. I mean, he's got to be fed when he's really small. You know, just cry. I mean, just, you know what he means, but what, the, but the, what the baby's crying. He's putting us in this picture. Whoever then humbles himself. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he's greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is what one of my, my problems with seminary. I understand the scripture to say, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I have studied the Bible every day for the last 46 years. I might have missed a few. I missed one little period of time. Other than that, why? Am I, is there praiseworthy for studying? No, I'm just doing what I'm commanded, which in Luke he says, look, when you go out and you've done everything you had to do, you know, don't, don't look up for accolades, I'm paraphrasing. Just understand you did what you had to do. You got nothing coming to you. Just be thankful you're in heaven. You're going to heaven. That's the attitude. So when we don't do everything that we're asked to do, there's no pride attached to it. So when a person gets to the place where they're qualified for ministry because they've studied the Word of God, and God help us if it's not with the qualifications that are all part of that, which is being a, the, a proper family man and head of his house and not being given them much wine and all of those characteristics which are more than the teaching ability. When we see a person who's qualified because he graduated from seminary without carefully looking at the rest of a person's life and character and motives, which we can't look at, or we can look at as fruit, you know, master divinity drives me out of my mind. The apostles did not have a master of divinity. They had three years living with Christ, hearing his teaching, most of which they didn't understand until Pentecost. They go through 40 days with Jesus after Pentecost, and after those days, they're given the Holy Spirit, and then they're apostles. They didn't even have the New Testament yet. They spoke from the Old Testament. And they laid a foundation for the church, and revival took place because the Holy Spirit was poured out, and the vine was flourishing, and therefore the branches were flourishing, and it's not self-attainment. The church cannot be built on any form of pride. It doesn't work. Jesus said it can't do it. You're not even getting into heaven unless you become like a child, and unless you humble yourself, you're not going to be the greatest in the kingdom. You'll be somewhere on the bottom. Pride kills. It destroyed the devil. This is why that you can't be a novice to be qualified because unless you fall into the condemnation of the devil through pride, this isn't where the 
message was going to go, but it is where the message was going to go. This is the groundwork, and the groundwork and the foundation for the church and for each individual is this, humility. You want to accept the love of God? You have to know just how much you didn't earn it. You want to accept the love of God, recognize it in your life, so that you can have a perspective that you can accomplish anything through Christ. You can't accomplish anything through yourself. This is the foundation for the church. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and he was drowned in the depths of the sea. You know what that verse means? If you've ever read this and you may be a little confused and you know the depths of it, get the context. The context is the church and individual people are built on a foundation of humility. If you cause a person to stumble so that they're no longer humble, well, it would be better a millstone wrapped around your neck and you thrown in the depths of the sea. So when we set up kings in the kingdom of the church and we say we want a king like they did in Israel to go out and fight our battles for us, and instead of the church being a church of many members who are able to disciple, evangelize, and bring people to Christ, and in that evangelism that bring them to Christ, take up responsibility to see that they grow like we do for our children. When we make the king go out and do this for us and we don't do it ourselves because we've made an idol of a, of a pastor, this is without any condemnation of any single pastor. I know no one's heart, and I have no intention whatsoever of condemning any individual person. If there are people out there, and if there are people that I have experienced in my life, all that's been experienced is under the blood. I have no right to sit in judgment of anyone for anything. The Christian life is not built upon judgment. It's built upon discernment. Discerning right from wrong, good from evil. A corrupt foundation from a good foundation. A foundation of humility versus a foundation of pride. Woe to the world because it's stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, because that's what the world is built on. It's built on monuments and accolades and awards and trophies and how good we are, and we're all going to hell. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block Comes And then he goes into this whole idea of uh, being offended by your eye. Or, I'm not going to go into it. And then there's a 99. And as it works, he works his way through this chapter, the Matthew, and writing these things. He finally gets to forgiveness, and he says this. How many times must I forgive someone? And he, you know, 70 times 7. And then he goes on, Jesus says, tells him 70 times 7. And then he talks about the talents, and he talks about all of this. But in verse 15, he says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private, if he sins. Not if you're actually speaking to the person, 
about something other than sin, and you're trying to open his eyes and allow him to, to see what he needs to see about Christianity. Like I'm talking right now, I, I can be very offensive right now to any person whose life is built on pride. And I, I have no intention. I don't want to hurt anybody. But for the person whose life is built on pride, you know, I've just mentioned about seminary and pastors and, and people in the pews, you know, it's, all of that can be offensive. Why? I'm not pointing out anyone's sin. I'm just speaking the truth. This is what Jesus said. Jesus said, you built your life on these things. If the devil comes along and he creates the environment to build your life on something else and you go that way, well, that's first the first head that's on is on the devil. And it's our responsibility to recognize if we're doing that. And if we do that, we have to what? We have to repent as so far as we've entered into sin about it. If you're tempted, but you don't give into it, it's not sin. If you, we sin, we have to confess it. So building also on this foundation of humility. So remember, we're all like little children. So when he says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Now that can be very offensive and then division and all, again, it can ugly really fast. And most churches don't do this. Most churches just rationalize away Matthew 18 like it's not in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 5, not in the Bible. Many, many passages. But that's not what Jesus said. He said, show him his fault. In private, at first, if he doesn't get it, there's no reason to bring other people right away. He might just get it and good. He doesn't say you can't speak to someone, especially if it's not about personal sin. But if it's personal sin, and it's maybe it's against the person, and maybe it's not. Maybe just aware that that sin is taking place. Speak to him about it. If he listens good, you won your brother. If not, you've got to take two or three more people. Now it's going to really get offensive. Now you're doing it, in, and, and then eventually it's going to be for the whole church, which at that point it's like, okay, we have to put you out of the church because you're not acting like a Christian and you may not be a Christian and we don't want to send you to hell, helping you to think that you're a Christian when you're not. With the hope is that having faced that, won't even be put out, but be sorry to repentance and not want to be put out and, and then begin to go into an observation where we see things are changing because the Christian life is about, and it may take some time, but the, it's about patience, it's about love, it's about enduring through sin, but overcoming sin. You're never going to overcome sin sometimes without this process. This process takes great humility and great courage to go to a brother and say, you know, brother, I see things. And maybe, and I've felt this many, many times, not willing to really want to do that because the person is so proud, you just know it's going to be ugly. And unless you're in a church where the people can come together and, and support one another in this kind of an activity, man, that's hard. That is really difficult. But this is Jesus' command to us. If your brother sins, go and show him. Those are Jesus' words, not mine. It's not an option. There's nothing optional about Matthew 18. It's just the churches are disobedient in this whole idea. We'd rather live in our own little cocoon and not be bothered or touched by other people. We don't want to be offended. We don't want to offend anybody. And so if sin goes on, it goes on. And then we wonder why the church is in the condition that it's in. Well, don't wonder anymore. Don't leave the church. You know what it is. Speak about it. 
Share people. Get close to people so that you can share and, and hopefully proclaim a, a, a humble message. So, you know, if people get built on this matter of humility, I mean, if they really get properly instructed on humility, and if they're really a Christian, they'll go in that direction, particularly if their life is being built on prayer. Not teaching without prayer, not prayer without teaching, but it's built on prayer, first and foremost. If it's not built on prayer, you're going to have a hard way to go, even if the teaching is good. That's my experience. That's what the Bible teaches. My father's house shall be called the house of prayer, not instruction. It's not a school. It's a church, and a church is a community. And when there's a, church, a community, there's, there's an, it's an organism. It's a living, breathing thing, and it's growing. And that's why it's pictured in the New Testament as a body and an eye, and a foot, and a hand, uh, it's parts. Why? Because it's, it's, it's an organism. It's a living thing. It's not an organization. It's not a school. It's a, it's a house of prayer. And it's a community that grows together and are willing to go to one another about how we live in our lives. So I hope uh, some of this is helpful. I hope you see how this foreknowing turns into predestining and it turns into calling us out of the world and being separated to Christ and how that separation to Christ uh, in, involves justification and glorification. We're already in heaven with Christ in a, in a very real way in the sense of who God is. We're very in a very real way that even before the world was created, before anything happened, God predetermined those whom he would save. He didn't have to save anyone. He could have saved me. He could not, didn't have to save me. He didn't have to save any person who's saved. He did it out of the goodness of our hearts. His heart. He's, he, wasn't, he wasn't forced to save anyone. If anything, his righteousness demands punishment why Christ has had to suffer and die in our place. So the fact that he saved some, I mean, just study the opening verses of, of Romans chapter 2. I mean, on some, he just shows grace and mercy by saving some. This is a fantastic truth upon which is built the love of God. I don't know why he did it for me. I don't know why he did it for anyone, except other than it was his choice. Not mine, was his choice. And he set me free to make choices. He gave me a new heart. He gives every Christian that. And the choices that we make are the choice, the big one, the really, really big one, is humility. My whole life, my whole Christian life, my eternal life is built upon everything God chose to do. And in that, I am set free to make godly choices. Not in my power, in his power. In his power for me, in his power for you, if you're a child of God. If you're not a child of God, please come to Christ. Please ask him to open your heart, to change your heart, to change your mind, to place the law of God on your mind and your heart, and to make you one with him, to humble you as a little child that you might come. Please do that. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word that comes from your heart. It comes from the heart 
of the one who predetermined to make time and in that time to put creation, angels, men, animals, material universe, from the highest of beings who understand with full knowledge to man created in innocence, who fell in innocence, who became knowledgeable and sinful and fallen and and wretched. To animals, they have no sense at all. They have instinct and they think, but not like we think. They have no soul. They have no sense of right or wrong. They can kill one another without any hindrance whatsoever. Stealing, there's no such thing. There's no law for an animal. They're made animals. They're fitted for destruction. But we have fallen into the condemnation of the devil through pride. Lord, save us. Save us from pride. Save us from the condemnation of the devil. Save those who hear this message. Save, save those who read Romans chapter 8, Matthew chapter 18. Bring them to a knowledge of what it means to be humble and to be loved by Jesus Christ. We ask these things for his honor and his glory in his name. Amen.